Welcome to episode number 41 of The Thermal. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. Well, I just drove a return trip of 4,000 kilometers to Northern California and back to Invermere, BC in my wife's little 1996 Miata, only slightly roomier than most glider cockpits. Well, I came back with an endorsement to fly self-launch gliders from Rex Mays at William Soaring. The training was first rate and I'd highly recommend it. Next week, I'll be flying my syndicate-owned ASH31MI for the first time, and I can't wait. Now, in this episode of The Thermal, I speak to Dirk Corporal, the winner of the 2022 FAI's Pirat Geringer Diploma. Dirk has spent over 20 years writing and developing an exceptional student manual for glider pilots that's now available in multiple languages. And remembering a rock star of aviation and gliding, Einar Ennevoldsen, the man behind the Perlin Project. His longtime friend Ed Warnock tells us about this remarkable man. And a history flashback, Scott McGaugh is the author of The Brotherhood of the Flying Coffin. He puts us in the cockpit with American combat glider pilots and their missions in World War II. That's all on episode number 41 of The Thermal. The Pirat Geringer Diploma was created by the FAI in memory of Pirat Geringer, the first president of the International Gliding Commission. The diploma is awarded for eminent services to international gliding. Well, this year, Dutch glider pilot Dirk Corporal has won for his outstanding work on creating an internationally recognized student training manual for glider pilots. I've reached Dirk at his home in Staines, the Netherlands, which is in the northwest corner of the country. Dirk, congratulations on having your work recognized with this award. Yes, thank you very much. Now, I, I've been looking at this this manual online, or one of the many versions that I've seen online. It's in multiple languages. What what a great thing to have created for the gliding world. Yes, well, it came uh, all from itself. I just uh, started with writing the Dutch book some 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's because... Uh, I am a glider pilot in uh, Friesland. Uh, in nor northern, nor northern Holland? Northern Holland. And they asked me in 1995 uh, if I would become an instructor. And when I uh, learned for being an instructor, then I saw that you have to give a briefing to your uh, students. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for if someone had already written all the briefings you have to give. No one had, had done that in the Netherlands before. So I started to write down all the briefings uh, uh, you have to give. Right. And when I had finished that, I put that in a little book, A6 form, very little. So you can put it in your pocket and bring it with you to the glider field. And that little book became the attention of the Committee of Instructions and Safety in the Netherlands. And they asked me, are you willing to make an official Netherlands version of that book? So, so, so it uh, started. Huh. And now, then I, the made, I made the second one, just writing everything you have to learn if, if you come to a glider field uh, from the first day to your first start to your first solo. And uh, I have written it so easy as possible. And uh, with that book, I went to the 
instructors conference and I gave all the instructors one and asked them, have you tips or correction for me? Mm -hmm. I got a lot of them from very many instructors. I worked all those advices through. And so we, we, we got the first printing. Derek, what, what, what do you do for a living? How are you able to, because I know I couldn't do something like this. How are you able to, what skill set do you have to do this? Oh, my profession was history teacher. I've done that for 41 years. Okay. And uh, what I did is the same as my work at school. I, I make uh, lessons for the pupils. I make PowerPoints. I make uh, tests, quizzes, and all those things. Uh, now I'm uh, retired already for six years. And when I got retired, I just went on doing the same things, but now only for gliding. Huh. Well, that's that's. And, uh, it, it's very nice work. It's my hobby. Right. Well, I, I I can relate to that because I mean the podcast is the same kind of well, not in the same category, obviously, but giving back to the gliding world and spending time and doing that because you don't get paid for this. You you don't get anything, right? No, no. In the Netherlands, uh, no one is getting paid. You give uh, instruction, and that's uh, you, you pay your fee to to the gliding cup, but you you don't get paid for your work. Right. And that's normal. When when you uh, make a book and you don't get paid for it, people are willing to help you. So mm -hmm. they are willing to give you corrections. They are willing to give you uh, pictures or photos if you ask them and uh, so on. It, it's a book made by, by many people in the Netherlands. So it's not only my book, but, but a lot of people have, have worked on it. Uh, I was the one who, who has written it down, who, who made all the corrections in it. Uh, but uh, for instance, all the illustrations you see are made by a professional illustrator, Henk Jukkema. And uh, well, he was a member of our gliding club and he has made uh, the, the wonderful uh, pictures you can see on the Dutch version or the English version or the German version. Yeah, I'll put out the uh, link on the on my uh, Facebook page so people can look at it. But the the drawings are, I noticed the one about thermaline gliders and how a thermal works. It's uh, it's very clear and easy to understand. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's, uh, it's a living document, right? So every year it gets revised. It's, it's yes, living... Yeah. Yeah. on the internet yeah yes and that's a very good thing so uh, we have in in the netherlands already the fifth printing and when the fifth printing was ready uh, there was a guy in the netherlands uh, erik engelsman who is an instructor in the netherlands and also an instructor in germany and he said we in germany don't have such an easy book for uh, students who start uh, gliding is it possible to translate it into German? Well, I was very honored that yeah. he would uh, like to translate it. So they have translated it into German. Uh, 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 a few German instructors who could read Dutch and who could read German uh, have translated it. And after that, it, it's not only a translation, it's now the official German version, uh, the official way they in Germany, how they learn uh, in, in the whole of Germany, how they learn the pupils, the students uh, gliding. Wow. They, they, they have worked a long time on it. That In Germany, there are uh, 16 uh, Bundesländer, and each Bundesland ha had his own way of teaching. And now the, those 16 came together, and they have all the lessons they worked through 
uh, with about 16 head of trainings from from each region. And now it's the official German uh, way, uh, the way they do it in, in all of Germany. Oh, I, I saw on the website as well, I think there are other languages. It's in Italian as well, right? Yes, it's also an Italian one. The Italian ha have translated the German version. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, that, that was very nice. I, I knew they were working on it. But once I was with my son in the Alps in Lamotte, we were gliding there. And after a day gliding, I went uh, in the restaurant for a beer and I walked uh, again. Uh, and then I saw in uh, on a table the, the first time the Italian book. <laughs> so nice. I, I came with two beers and the Italian book to my son. Uh, now, I, I, I've looked through it and I mean, let's face it, gliding around the world, almost everything is the same except for some specific local air law. So yes, yes. I, I can almost see this as a plug and play. Like here in Canada, they could use it, just have to adjust the, the local air law in Canada to make it work. Yes, yes, yes. It's all on the internet. So if they go to gliding.world, mm -hmm. wgliding.world, they can see the English uh, version and they can also click there on the German version and on the Belgian version and on the Netherlands version. Well, what a what a great uh, thing to give to the gliding world! Great job. Yes, but it comes from from both sides. Uh, for instance, the Germans have translated uh, all the theory as well mm -hmm. for, for the SPL examination, uh, and they uh, and, and again they did not only translate it, but they also updated it to their way of uh, working. Mm -hmm. And they even went uh, a little bit further. They have now written aerobatics. You can see that on the on the German uh, uh, internet site. Hmm. They have made aerobatics, and we have an agreement. Everything I write, they can use, and everything they make, I can use. Huh. So now in the Netherlands, we we have a, a com uh, aerobatic commission, and they are translating uh, translating it to Dutch. So. They, they are almost ready. Uh, uh, in, so in, sh in short time, there will be uh, also a Dutch aerobatic part on the, the Dutch side, and it's a translation of the German part. It's a nice symbiotic relationship. Yes, all, all countries in the world should do this. Huh. Just now, put everything they have on the Internet so we can learn from it. Yeah, yeah, and that's the beautiful, you know, there are many downsides to the Internet, but this is one of yeah. the positive things. Yes, yes. They, they, they must put it on the internet, but not behind the passport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally agree. Yes. So, so the, uh, everybody must be able to see what, what have they made in, in the Netherlands, what have they made in Germany, what have they made in England. The, the, you, you can find a lot of it. So also from the BCE, there's a very good BCE instructor's handbook on the internet. You, you can find an Australian book on the internet, Gliding in Australia, and I've also seen that one. Hmm. So all, all the countries should, should do that. Now, Dirk, before I let you go, tell me a little bit about your own gliding in Holland. Oh, I'm gliding uh, near my home. I, I live in Steens in the, in the Netherlands, in the north of the Netherlands, and five kilometers away from my house, there's a military field. We can glide there on Saturday and on Sunday. And uh, while well, now I am retired, I can also go gliding uh, through the days of the week. 
Uh, so as yesterday, I've been on Terlet for a gliding field. And, and that's the great go, big Dutch uh, airfield. That's the great, yes, the national uh, field of the Netherlands. And uh, our club is going each year to have a, a summer camp in, uh, in Germany. And we, we have a camp in Veendam. And we, uh, we go to several fields in the Netherlands and, and abroad. And, and what do you fly? Uh, I have 25 years ago, I bought a Pegas. And I still love the plane, so I will keep it. And we have, an, uh, with my son, we have bought an LS7. Hmm. And he is almost flying in that. I seldom fly in it. And with uh, six people, I have a share in the Duo Discus XLT. Wow. So you're a busy, busy pilot. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a way of living. Huh. And, and your son is just as enthralled with gliding as you are? Yes, I have two sons. When, when I became a, a glider pilot, uh, my youngest son uh, also started when he was 14 years. I, I uh, started when I was 34, so that's late. <laughs> my, son start, my oldest son started with uh, 14 years, and my youngest son also started with 40 years, and they are both now uh, airline pilots by the KLM. Wow. That's, yes. Uh, and they're both so, still gliding. And my, my oldest son uh, uh, stopped with gliding. He was also an instructor. My youngest son is a, a very active glider pilot. He is one of the Dutch competition teams, and uh, uh, he may go to Australia in December this year. So, who, so who's the better glider pilot, you or your son? My son is the better one. <laughs> yes, yesterday we were both flying. I, I was in the duo discus and he was in the LS7. Well, the thermals were not so good. So we flow about 215 kilometers. And just before coming home, we had to use the motor. He was in the LS7 and he didn't uh, land out. Huh. <laughs> so uh, That's I hope sweet. he's doing well on the, on the championships in Australia. Right. Wow. And uh, will you be going to join him in Australia? Yes, he asked me. Uh, I am his uh, retrieval crew. Crew chief, so, retrieval crew, everything, right? Uh, yes, retrieval crew work. That is what, what I have to do there. Huh. Well, that's an exciting trip. Yes, I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Derek, it's been uh, really interesting speaking with you. Uh, thanks again for doing all this work for the, the gliding community, the international gliding community. And uh, I hope we speak again at some point on the on the podcast. Okay. And thank you very much for this uh, conversation okay Derek take care bye-bye bye-bye Derek Kopadal spoke to me from Staines the Netherlands if you want to see this manual for yourself go to glidingworld.com that's glidingworld.com should have checked SkySight. I'm sure we've all heard from fellow pilots who've missed a great day because they didn't check the right weather app. SkySight has become the go-to weather application for glider pilots around the world. It's tailored specifically for glider pilots by crunching the last minute weather data for up-to-date forecasts that can't be beat. If you're interested in trying out SkySight to maximize your cross-country flying, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial.
Einar Enevoldsen wasn't just a pilot. He was an aviation pioneer and explorer. He was a test pilot, Air Force jet pilot, glider pilot, and a leading light in the world of aviation. He was also the man who first came up with the Perlin Project, flying gliders in wave up to the stratosphere. Einar died in 2021 at the age of 88. A post-pandemic celebration of life was recently held to commemorate all that he did. Perlin Project CEO Ed Warnock knew Einar well. He was a friend and a colleague on the Perlin Project. I've reached Ed at home just outside of Portland, Oregon. Hello, Ed. Thanks for coming on to the show to talk about Einar. My pleasure, Harry. It's an honor to join you. Now, in his obituary, the family said, please take inspiration from Einar's life and do your damnedest. Is that something <laughs> he often said and I assume lived by? I think it uh, represents his uh, philosophy in life, not only his philosophy for flying, but his philosophy for for philosophy and the arts and whatever he got involved in. He, he sounds like a remarkable man. I, I, he sounds like the kind of guy I would have loved to have met, a, a type of yeah man who had his fingers in everything. Yeah, it, he was—he uh, was the kind of person you love to go visit because you don't have uh, mono conversations just about your common interest. But he—he he liked to talk about literature or philosophy or science or theology. You know, you just—he just—he loved ideas. Mm -hmm. Now. I understand his love of flying started in high school, and, and I gather he learned to glide when he was a teenager? Yeah, I think that was his first uh, flying experience was he was uh, he was a glider pilot. Mm -hmm. Hung out at the local glider port and and uh, did ground crewing and then, then started flying. And he had an, an amazing aviation career. I mean, he, he, maybe you can tell me a bit about that. I understand he was in the U.S. Air Force and then became a test pilot and flew all sorts of planes. Yeah, he uh, he wound up uh, becoming a uh, fighter pilot. Uh, he flew uh, Sabre jets and F-104s. Mm -hmm. uh, and th then he went to the Empire Test Pilot School in Farnborough, England. Right, right. And uh, and he was a test pilot for the Royal Air Force for a while. And uh, and then then after that, he became a, a NASA test pilot and flew out of Edwards. Wow. To, to have that stuff in your resume, I mean, he must have been the, the top of his class, the, the, the top of the, the game in that sense. You know, I don't know where he stood in his class. I, I do know that he was uh, careful beyond measure. I asked him once, I said, well, how did you manage to be a test pilot and fly all those different aircraft all these years? And, and you never, you never, uh, you never crashed. You never bent an airplane. And he said, well, we, I never flew until we had planned it and replanned it and talked it through and created checklists. And then we follow the flight plan rigorously. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, if you do all that, it's uh, it's a safe profession. A, a true manager of risk. Yep. Huh. Now, of course, the podcast is about gliding. And the reason I wanted to chat with you about what he did, uh, not just his military career and test pilot school stuff, but mm -hmm. he was one of the movers and shakers behind the Perland Project that you're now CEO of. Talk to me about his, his love of this project and and. 
I understand he was the guy that came up with the original idea to go down and, and test these this upper atmospheric wave. Yeah, after Anar was a test pilot for NASA, he became a test pilot for Grobe aircraft, and he was flying a high-altitude airplane at the DLR, the German Space Agency. And he was walking down the hall one day, and he saw a picture that uh, had altitude markings up the side, and it showed at uh, nearly 100,000 feet, it showed something that looked like wave. And he went into the scientist's office and said, what's that? And the answer was, it's a LIDAR picture of waves. And, and LIDAR is a kind of radar, right? Yeah, it uses lasers instead of radio waves. So it bounced uh, lasers off of particles in the air. Mm -hmm. And then it was a false color picture. So the waves showed up in bright colors. Hmm. And uh, it was up over Scandinavia. And uh, Anar being a glider pilot, he looked at that and he said, well, I'm familiar with waves. I fly waves down near the, uh, down near the mountains. He said, I, I had no idea they went that high. In <laughs> fact, most of us didn't know waves existed in the stratosphere. We called the stratosphere the stratosphere because we thought, well, once you get into the stratosphere, the air doesn't go up and down anymore. All the weather is below you. There's no convective lifting other than a, an occasional thunderstorm that pokes its head into the stratosphere. We thought that everything was uh, flat. And, and, and it turns out the biggest waves on the planet exist and, in the stratosphere. And, and this stratospheric wave was, I, I assume, catnip for Einar. Well, he did some calculations and and said, you know, there's enough lift there. And then he put a qualifier in. He said, if you had the right glider, you could fly those waves. Now, the right glider meant you'd have to fly in basically a Martian atmosphere. It's less than 2% atmospheric density. Uh, it's probably minus 60 or 70 degrees Fahrenheit temperature. Uh, it's well, well, well above the Armstrong line where blood boils at body temperature. So what he was talking about is if you had a space capsule with glider wings, you could fly those waves. And he started to do that, but he was wearing, they were wearing astronaut suits, if I remember correctly. Yep. He, he started to explore and do, do research. And uh, he eventually linked up with uh, Steve Fawcett. Right. And uh, Steve took uh, took a glider that was a motor glider, a DG505M, mm -hmm. and they pulled the motor out and they put liquid oxygen system in so it would support pressure suits they borrowed from NASA. <laughs> As and one does. And began to look all over the world for where can we find these waves. And, and is that where Argentina came in? Yeah. Uh, the first place that Anar knew of the waves was over Scandinavia, but they happened at a Quite, uh, quite extreme northern latitude. So the 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 days are short, the weather's cold, the runway's frozen, uh, and it's a it's a limited uh, flight opportunity. He looked at places like Kirinen in uh, Norway and or in Sweden rather, and said, you know, we could fly there, but it's pretty limited. 
So they, they were looking for places where you have a number of things that happen simultaneously. You get a front crossing a mountain range to create mountain waves, and then you have a jet stream and finally the polar vortex stacked up on top of each other above the mountain range. And the polar vortex only occurs at uh, either polar or, or subpolar uh, latitudes. And so he was either going to fly near Antarctica or up, up near the North Pole someplace. Mm -hmm. And they tried uh, New Zealand first, but uh, the angle of the mountains didn't appear to be quite right. And the waves die out at the tropopause. The mountain waves are strong up to the top of the troposphere, but then they die out and they pick up again in the stratosphere. So getting through a dead zone was the challenge and they couldn't work it out in New Zealand. So they tried Argentina next and the combination was there and they were able to break through into the stratosphere and make contact with these very high altitude waves. And were they just using regular tow plane? And this was out of El Calafate, I think, in southern Argentina. Yep. And, and, and they used, yep, just a regular uh, tow plane. It, it looks like a Super Cub that they used, and they would, they would tow to the ridge height, about 10,000 feet, drop the tow, and then uh, they would work their way up in the mountain wave and then the challenge is finding a path through the tropopause, through the dead zone. And they eventually did it in uh, 2006. And uh, they made it up to about 51,000 feet, which beat uh, Paul Bickle's record. And they set a world altitude record for gliders. Mm -hmm. But the important thing was they, they made contact with really strong stratospheric waves. They were still climbing when they called it a day. <laughs> You know, and and I I gather Einar wasn't a man to to brag about these sorts of things, right? He was sort of a he did it, but he he didn't brag about it. No, in fact, if you engaged him in a conversation, he he told it as a technical story. He mm -hmm. didn't tell it as a as a as a way of uh, uh, shining a light on himself. He talked about the technical things that had to be solved. He talked about the weather uh, that had to be right. He talked about the structure of the waves, mm -hmm. but he, 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 was, uh, he was interested in those things, but not promoting himself. Right. Now, you've been a friend of his for a long time. I imagine on his own, he must have been pinching himself with glee that he made it that far. <laughs> well, I think it gave him, gave him a lot of joy. There, there's an interesting uh, side story that when Einar was very young in high school, he set a world record for a model airplane endurance flight. Huh. And then when he was in the Air Force, he set, uh, he set world records for time to climb in his uh, F-104. And then he finally set a world altitude record in gliders. And uh, uh, people have jokingly teased Einar, and they said, you know, you probably have a world record for the number of years between your first and your last world record, which was about 50 years. <laughs> so for 50 years, he set aviation world records. That's very cool. Uh, uh, how how will you remember him? I mean, he, he's been gone for a few years now. This celebration of life just happened recently. But I, I imagine you look back and think about him quite a bit. I do. Yeah. Einar, uh 
Einar, besides being a mentor and a and a pilot to uh, to admire, he he was he was just a wonderful person to have as a friend. I my memories of him are are some of the conversations that we had, uh, in particular about uh, philosophy and metaphysics. Uh, you know, we would we would talk uh, Portland business for as long as we needed to. And then we would talk about the the meaning of life. We would talk about the nature of physics. We would we would talk about other things, and those were those were just classic conversations. Huh. They were you can talk gliding with a lot of people, but talking metaphysics, there's just a few <laughs> friends who who uh, enjoy doing that. Well, he sounds like a, a wonderful man. Now, uh, b- before I let you go, Perlin was obviously a project very dear to his heart. I understand that the project team is going back to Argentina this fall. But what's what's the latest update? Uh, as we speak, the Perlin uh, two glider, which is the space capsule with glider wings, that in 1992, Anar said, if we if we had that airplane, we could fly these waves. That that airplane is in a seagoing container. It is just off the tip of Baja, California at the moment, heading south. Cool. And uh, the team will join it the uh, last couple of weeks in July. We'll join it at El Calafate, put it together, and uh, we'll be joined by the Egret Toplane, mm-hmm. which is our Toplane now. And we will fly in uh, the last part of July, August, and the first half of September. Well, that sounds amazing. Good luck with all of that. Uh, I imagine Einar will be looking over the, I guess, Jim Payne's shoulder and the other people in the cockpit and the people on the ground. So um, I'll touch base with you guys later this summer to find out how that's been going. And yeah, good luck with that. And thanks for talking to me about Einar. Okay. And for anybody who is interested, we have a virtual cockpit that you can sign up for on our web page and when we're flying you can follow on a moving map and see the altitude and we've got in beta testing uh, it's not ready for prime time yet but in beta testing we've got a video link so people might be able to catch a, a glimpse outside the airplane as well as follow the flights and very see cool. how the attempt is coming i will put that link up uh, on the website as well and uh, we'll get more eyeballs on that Ed, uh, a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks again, and take care. My pleasure. Bye now. Bye-bye. Ed Warnock spoke to me from his home near Portland, Oregon. For more on the Perlin Project and Einar, go to theperlinproject.org. That's theperlinproject.org. The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the Made in Canada automated task scoring platform, Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the QNIM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots. And it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States, and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com.
As glider pilots, most of us know the stress of a field landing. Lots of things to think about until you're safely on the ground. Now imagine you're flying a very large combat glider at night, loaded with troops and equipment, you're being shot at, and your towplane has one engine on fire. That's the kind of stress that many young combat glider pilots faced in World War II. Scott McGaugh is the author of the recently published Brotherhood of the Flying Coffin, the story of American combat glider pilots and their missions. I've reached Scott at home in San Diego. Hello, and thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So what was the impetus behind the book? What made you so interested in this story? Well, it was a serendipitous discovery. Uh, the book I had written previous to that, Honor Before Glory, about a Japanese-American uh, unit rescue mission in Europe in World War II, there was a brief mention that some of the soldiers were not available for the rescue mission because they had gone into France on gliders. And I literally stopped in my research, wrote down the word glider, and set it aside because I didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. um, and and from once I finished Honor Before Glory, I turned my attention to the word glider, and uh, thanks to some great folks here in the States and research, uh, uh, the Brotherhood uh, is the result. Yeah, it's, it's a great read. So thanks for that. Now, were you able to meet any surviving glider pilots you wrote about in the book? Because I, I can't imagine there are too many left. There are not too many left, obviously, the greatest generation. Uh, I was able to interview a couple by phone. Mm -hmm. um, it was very helpful. Uh, as you might imagine, I have to be careful about the accuracy of memories after all these years. Sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing what they could get right uh, in terms of the weather on a Tuesday in 1945, but other things were a bit off the mark. So, But still, talking to them about their feelings, their emotions, their memories, those are as clear as if they were yesterday. You know, I find that very interesting. I, I just lost a friend. She was in her mid-90s. She was oh. a Dutch Holocaust survivor, a oh. fabulous life, but she could remember details from the war like yeah. they were yesterday yes but, but she couldn't tell you what she had for breakfast that morning <laughs> exactly i i i remember one one exchange she was talking about very detailed things about the weather literally and i had diaries and, and confirmed it but he was his memory was in the wrong country yeah huh. uh, that kind of thing yeah uh, yeah look it, it's understandable certainly understandable yeah. now let, let's get into the details of this whole thing so after Pearl Harbor, this is what I understand anyway, is that when the effort to build gliders and recruit pilots started? Uh, it, that's when it got underway. Uh, General Hap Arnold, uh, who commanding officer of the Air Corps, had ordered um, and had expressed interest in it shortly before Pearl Harbor, earlier in 1941. Mm -hmm. But it certainly was still in the design stage, the testing stage, the prototype stage. Uh, recruiting uh, had just begun. The training programs were not finalized by any by any uh, stretch. So, right. in reality, these young men all volunteered for uh, an aircraft not yet invented at Pearl, by Pearl Harbor. Now, how many gliders? So it's not, it's 1942. Um, right. This whole program is starting to get legs. Yes. They're building gliders. They're recruiting pilots. Set the scene for me. How many glider pilots are we talking about? How many gliders are we talking about? Give, give me an idea of the scale. Sure, sure. Um, and again, and by, and by context, about 2 million Americans were in Europe uh, in uniform. So against that context, about 13,000 gliders were, were built. Uh, about 4,000 
uh, glider pilot missions uh, were flown uh, in the space of about 10 months. Mm -hmm. So it was a relatively small slice of the uh, greatest generation, all being ramped up simultaneously training as well as glider construction, uh, which was very questionable uh, early on, all in 1942 for the first mission in, in 1943. And I read some shocking uh, details in your book about subcontractors providing things oh. like uh, wing spars that were only half the width that yes. were supposed to be, that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, the In the ramp-up, uh, it was extraordinary how quickly they, they did this. They they contracted with contractors to build aircraft that had no aircraft experience whatsoever. Uh, hundreds of subcontractors, Steinway Pianos was making components. A casket maker was mm -hmm. a subcontractor. Heinz uh, Condiments was another subcontractor. Wow. Uh, so while these men were f figuring out, they were test pilots really, figuring out how to fly this kind of a glider, um, the and quality this is the of the CG. gliders... The CG4A, the the the, yes, the wacko, and, and, right? They were, that's where they started. You know, waiting for the real gliders, the combat gliders, to come off the assembly line. Mm -hmm. um, one glider manufacturer was trying to build them under a circus tent in Florida until a hurricane came along. It was it was just horrific, um, and yet they finally did manage to get uh, a prototype built and put together uh, the CG4A, mm -hmm. uh, which became the mainstay of the American program within just a couple of years. Now, is this why got the nickname Flying Coffin? Um, in some respects, it's a, that's a bit of a misnomer in the sense that uh, these were aircraft about the size of a B-25 bomber uh, covered in reinforced fabric around a, a tubular steel frame, uh, a highly detailed uh, plywood floor to carry the cargo, 5,000 pieces, hmm. Um Wingspan about 88 feet, uh, fuselage length about 48 feet. They were incredibly, the pilots and the crew and, and the infantry were incredibly vulnerable to small arms fire, which we'll probably get into in terms of the actual battlefield reality. Yet in reality, they were remarkably sturdy aircraft. Uh, they would be, you know, coming in at 100 miles an hour and hopefully less. Uh, we'll call it sliding to a stop, not mm -hmm. necessarily crash landing. Um, and the casualty rates were relatively low considering those circumstances. So on the one hand, they were flying coffins in terms of being defenseless, mm -hmm. uh, no motor, you know, no weapons, no parachutes, no second chances on a one-way mission. Uh, but in reality, they held up pretty well considering the circumstances. Huh. Wow. Now, for the American combat glider pilots, the first batch of these guys had been trained in the States. Yes. They were sent by ship over to England and, and also shipped out were all the gliders, and then they started operations there, training mm -hmm. operations, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, basically, there was a joke among the glider pilots that uh, England at one point had pretty much become a, 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 a land-based aircraft carrier uh, with the, in terms of the number of aircraft and different programs that were going on. Mm -hmm. uh, the first mission was Operation Husky in 1943, so the real ramp-up uh, in terms of the glider program was late 1942 and certainly into early 1943. And then it really got going uh, in 1944. Now you said operation Husky. Now, if I have my history, correct, that's the invasion of Sicily, correct? Correct. Uh, which was largely a British mission uh, put together relatively at the last minute. Again, with these test pilots, uh, the glider portion of it, it was an unmitigated disaster. Um, they were Guinea pigs. Um, the, the combat plan was to fly across the Mediterranean at night uh, through a storm uh, with 
uh, uh, no rehearsal, uh, minimal training, being towed by uh, uh, C-47 crews that had no combat experience. Right. And uh, so those young guys flying the, the tow planes, Yes. from what I read, I mean, understandably, you're young, you've got no combat experience, sure. you know, you're scared shitless. Yes. And uh, the gunfire is coming up. But, but the tragedy of this, from what I read in your book as well, is that a, a lot of these gliders were released out over the water. Yes, uh, too far over the water to give the gliders any chance of making it to land because while well, the glider pilots really held a, the tow plane crews responsible for that, the mm -hmm. tow plane crews were under orders to stay out of range of enemy fire. Uh, and with artillery and so on, they then released these gliders too far from shore, uh, one of the many painful lessons learned, uh, so that ultimately, I think it was close to 70 gliders uh, crashed uh, into the water, you know, in the middle of the night out of 130 some gliders, only 13 made it to their landing zones ashore. Wow. What a debacle. Yes. 600 men uh, were lost half by drowning. So it's interesting that after this, the allied leaders still went ahead with all these major combat op operations for gliders. They, because after this, if I, again, I think Normandy was after this, right? Correct. Correct. So correct. how did they see success in Normandy? And not, you know, what do they change? What did they improve to make sure that they wouldn't have the same issues? Sure. There, there were a lot of things that took place. One, there was far more training of dress rehearsals. Uh, they were better prepared. Uh, obviously, uh, we now had some combat experience with the towing crews and that sort of thing. Um, they realized that night missions were practically suicidal. And mm -hmm. while there was some of that at Normandy, by and large, it was a daytime operation. Uh, this time they had the paratroopers and the pathfinders to mark the landing zones more clearly. Right. So those uh, guys would parachute out of airplanes first, land on the ground, right. set up smoke pots or whatever it is so that the gliders would know where to land. Is that e exactly uh, the, the pathfinders were also marking drop zones for the paratroopers as well. Huh. Uh, so they were and literally we're talking about literally a half hour, one or two hours apart. They're coming in right behind each other almost in, in, in waves. So it was better organized, uh, better communication with the Navy. So there wasn't friendly fire mm -hmm. uh, at the gliders and the tow planes as they crossed the channel as everybody was heading toward Utah and Omaha. Um, so they learned quite a bit from Husky. Uh, and they were better prepared, better trained, uh, with more lead time than the first time around. So, D-Day, June 5th, 1944. Yes. Describe the scene to me, these these aerial armadas of C-47s and gliders continually heading over. I, I can't imagine the sound and the vision of what was going on. Oh, I, I'll tell you, the, the whole airborne operation, certainly including uh, gliders playing a key role, uh, there were reports from residents in the south of England uh, along the cliffs uh, talking about for an hour or longer, sometimes several hours, it was nothing but waves of planes in V-shaped formations hmm. flying overhead a couple thousand feet uh, on their way to France. Hmm. Uh, I can't imagine what that must have been like. And a lot of people don't realize that these are tow uh, operations, towing operations that would take several hours just to get to the battle zone. And then as they crossed over, uh, it went feet dry, uh, got into France. And of course, they looked down, the glider pilots talked about the thousands of ships getting ready to land, uh, come ashore and all those troops and so on. And then fly another six, eight, nine miles uh, before they finally got the signal to release uh, from that tow plane. 
and literally at six anywhere from 600 to 2,000 feet, uh, they had to get down onto into their landings any landing zone uh, as quickly as possible because these gliders had a descent rate of about 950 feet per minute. Right. So uh, they they didn't want them staying up there because they would be no. a target. Exactly. And gliders almost a misnomer in a sense. Uh, you know, sailplanes want to stay up, <laughs> yeah. as you well know. Uh, this was just the opposite. This was uh, to release, uh, turn into large, large circles, everly more yeah. and more tightly, uh, and yeah, find get a place on the ground as quickly as you can. Exactly. Yeah. The longer you were up, the more vulnerable you were. And the, these young pilots, both in the C-47s and the gliders, they were under constant enemy fire all the way across France. It wasn't just when they got to the landing zones. They were landing in enemy territory behind the front lines, constantly under fire. I can't imagine. I mean, it, you know, as a, a modern day glider pilot, I find it stressful enough if I yeah. run out of lift and land in a field. But right. to do this at night under fire, my God, I, I can't imagine. And you've got 13 souls in the back if you're carrying glider infantry, you know, mm -hmm. or you're you're carrying, you know, two tons almost of uh, ordnance or mm -hmm. fuel uh, in a, in a very flammable aircraft. Uh, just extraordinary when you think about the risks that they took as volunteers. Now, one of the stories in your book that I found quite moving: two best friends, one is flying the the C-47 tow plane, oh. and the other is piloting yeah. the glider. What, what happened there? Well, there, there are several of those instances where best friends basically watch the one friend watch the other get shot down. Wow. Uh, and, and they're heartbroken, of course, when they see that. They have to put it out of their mind. In one case, I think the one you're referring to, the C-47 pilot, uh, his, plane was, was, his plane was mortally wounded, but he stayed his course. Uh, many times they reported that the rest of the crew of the C-47, under orders, I'm sure, uh, parachuted out while the pilot stayed at his post in the front seat, mm. stayed on course uh, to get as close to the landing zone as possible, finally released the glider or the glider pilot released. Um, and then on occasion, uh, the C-47 was able to land uh, many times, not safely, uh, mm. basically whatever it took to meet the mission. And that's what those guys, those and, men did. And the other thing to remember, these guys were all 19, 20, yes. 21. Yes. Kids. I mean, most of them can't tie their shoelaces nowadays. You yeah. Know? Yeah. You know, that's something that really struck me is, you know, these guys were some of them a year or two out of high school. Uh -huh. You know, and I don't want to tell you what my priorities were a year, yeah, out yeah, of, yeah, year or yeah. two out of high school. Um, and on the flip side of that, there were there are many who are 26, 27, 28 years of age. They've been in the Army and uh, in an aviation, and they've got a wife and three kids at home. Right. Uh, and they're a Yeah, you mentioned one Canadian pilot in, in the book, I guess, who joined up with the U.S. Army Air Force. Yes. <sighs> Older guy, 36 or something. Yes, it, well. I won't say Endros. That's not his name. I, uh, his name is escaping me at the moment. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, it was rare that anyone was in their 30s from mm. what I was what I researched. They were mm. largely in their 20s or late 20s. But again, many of them were married uh, you know, with children back home, and, and they volunteered to, to do their bit. Yeah. In, in extraordinary circumstances. Now, I, I thought I knew about a lot of these glider operations because it's always been an interest of mine, but I didn't really yes. know too much about the, the Battle of the Bulge resupply mission. Oh, right. That's a unique story, which I didn't really know until I read your book. T tell us that story if you can. 
Well, the Battle of the Bulge, 101st uh, surrounded at Bastogne. Uh, it's been well documented uh, by historians and, yeah. and on the silver screen. Uh, Patton's coming up from the south. I believe it was the Third Army uh, with his lead uh, tanks. Again, we've seen that in the movies. What a lot of people don't know, and I certainly didn't either, that at the same time, they were mounting a glider uh, humanitarian mission. It was the only humanitarian mission for the gliders in the war. Uh, and before uh, Patton's tanks actually reached Bastogne, uh, 11 gliders were able to get through the day before Patton did uh, his, his men and deliver a critically needed surgical team and supplies. And then the next day after Patton had reached uh, Bastogne, I, I believe it was 50 more gliders uh, came in. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the more tragic aspects of the war for these glider pilots because they flew the same route as the gliders had the day before. The Germans know exactly what altitude, what speed they could lock on uh, with their firepower when, in fact, they could have flown a route over the tanks that had cleared a path and been much safer. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the senior yeah, officers... war, snafu, all that stuff. Yeah, they learned too war. late to get it, get the word to all the navigators and all the pilots in the, of the tow planes, and so they just literally stayed the course. And it was so tragic that literally of the last 12 uh, glider pilot mission, uh, squadron, rather, on that day, uh, eight uh, became prisoners of war, three were killed in action, and only one returned to base. Uh, to give you a sense of just how tragic that was. Right. And what really angered the glider pilots afterwards is several of them wrote in diaries and letters home that Patton was getting all the credit and they were overlooked. Hmm. Now, one of the differences between uh, the British glider pilots and the American combat glider pilots is that the British airborne guys were taught to fight. They were soldiers and glider pilots. The Americans were basically just glider pilots, but many of them wound up fighting with the infantry from and it's quite interesting no combat training and these guys are in there fighting like everybody else did. yeah yeah they did have some combat training and it evolved over uh, the course of the war as uh war planners and, and senior officers recognized that these guys inevitably were going to be in combat because they were landing in enemy territory and immediately surrounded mm -hmm. uh, virtually every single time so they did have some combat uh, training, but certainly combat was not the priority, uh, co-priority uh, that right. the British, you know, their approach. So they did have, they engaged in combat virtually from the time they opened the window or the cockpit uh, and, and hit the ground uh, in many ways. And, and some of them literally uh, remained, you know, with combat units for several days, even several weeks before they finally made it back to their base. But fundamentally, their job was uh, get on the ground, deliver their, their men, their cargo, their payload, report to their glider officer, um, commanding officer, usually do some perhaps guard duty uh, or security, that sort of thing. But more than anything else, get back to base as quickly as you could, even if it meant hitchhiking back to the coast and hitching a ride on a boat back to England. And that was because they would be needed for another mission. Exactly, exactly. Uh, one of the realities, as sturdy as these gliders were, um, very, very few were flyable a second time. Right. Uh, 95, 97% was a mortality rate, if you will, uh, for these gliders. So um, with some of the major missions that were coming up um, at that point in the war, they wanted their, these guys back to at their bases as quickly as possible. And that was several hundred miles away. So yeah. it often took time um, 
uh, they, one of the, I think, real shortcomings until the last mission of the war was evacuation planning for the glider pilots was never a priority and was always extremely haphazard. Now, there were a number of other glider operations after D-Day, again, Operation Market Garden, the Battle yes. of Arnhem, and then Varsity across the Rhine. Mm -hmm. um, in the end, was the use of combat gliders in the big picture, was it deemed a success or a failure by the, by the military folks or the historians who look back at all of this? I think generally they were, they are, were, are uh, deemed a success. The role that they played, their mission, they, certainly they accomplished their mission. When you look at the thousands of glider infantry they delivered at Varsity, you know, or the hundreds of tons of supplies at, in Dragoon or Normandy, mm -hmm. uh, two million tons of supplies at, at Operation Varsity alone, they met their mission. There was no question about it. Their bravery was recognized. Um, they were flying missions so dangerous that every time they got in a glider, they earned an air medal, the equivalent of a bronze medal. Wow. You know, a, a bomber pilot needed five missions. A fighter huh. pilot needed 10. Huh. A glider pilot, one. Huh. Uh, now, to answer your question a little bit differently, it became clear, I think, by the end of the war that the amount of resources necessary for glider warfare was extraordinary and maybe not as well used, if you will. Um, was it worth it or not from from that perspective? You know, the airplane crews and, and all their support people and all the bases and so on. The other aspect, by the end of the war, there was something called a helicopter right. that was coming along. Right. Yeah. Uh, it certainly validated in Korea and so on. So I think the glider pilots um, should be commended for, for accomplishing their mission time and time again, but it really was technology that was quickly that quickly became obsolete. And literally within a, a few years at the end of World War II, the glider program was formally disbanded. Right. Now, Scott, finally, before I let you go, you immersed yourself in this story. What What is your lasting impression of these young men, the gliders, and what they did? Extraordinary bravery. And I, but everyone would say that. I think the thing that really strikes me as much as anything is how humble they are uh, were when they came home. Mm. Um, the letters to their parents and to their wives and, and future children, if they didn't come back, some of them wrote those kinds of letters. Yeah, I, I'm just doing my job. You know, we'll resume our lives when we when this thing is over. Right. Those kinds of phrases. Uh, very little recognition or, or rec for their valor. Um, many of them didn't receive deserved medals until decades later. And yet they didn't seem to complain. They came back and became postmen and went back to school and worked for their father in the pharmacy or back to the farm or went to finish their college degree, whatever the case may be, quietly, you know, as silently mm -hmm. as they reached the battlefield. And I think, I think that impresses me as much as anything, such heroism, such sacrifice, uh, such little recognition, um, and accepting it that that was the way it needed to be if we were to win the war. Yeah. Well, I'm going to urge some of my fellow glider pilots who haven't uh, turned pages on these kind of books to, to immerse themselves in this history and learn a little bit more. Your book is fabulous. Thank you. Thank you very much for writing it. And uh, it'll uh, have a good place of honor in my bookshelf with all the other uh, books about the, the World War II uh, combat glider thing. So thank you very much for writing it. It truly has been my pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Scott McGaw, the author of The Brotherhood of the Flying Coffin, spoke to me from San Diego, California. To order a copy, go to an online retailer or, better yet, 
Order through your local bookshop. That's it for episode number 41 of The Thermal. The next episode will be out sometime in June, unless I'm too busy gliding. Please remember to subscribe to The Thermal and tell your flying pals to also listen and subscribe. And a short update on Matthias Schunk. I interviewed him recently after his harrowing crash and rescue while flying in the South African Grand Prix. He's still on the mend and says that, under the circumstances, I'm very well, but on the absolute scale of things, there's still a lot to do. But I'm getting better, very slowly, better and better. Matthias, best of luck with your recovery. Finally, if you have any good ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the Thermal Podcast. See you next time. I'm Mary Tenkate. Fly safe.